In the last episode of Conspiracy Land, we told you how T.J. Klausudis, tormented by the tweets by President Trump accusing former Congressman Joe Scarborough of killing his wife, came up with the idea of writing his letter to Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, pleading with him to take down the false and offensive comments from the company's site. All I'm left with is writing a letter and trying to appeal to the humanity of the president of Twitter or CEO or whatever his title is. That's all I was left with. But even as TJ was crafting that letter, an army of conspiracy theorists who feed off the president's tweets were taking the Scarborough-Klausuda story in strange new directions. It's a phenomenon that has come up time and again during the Trump presidency. Trump tweets and his loyalists in the political world and his allies on social media see them as a call to action, riffing on and embellishing their leaders' often baseless charges, serving as the president's digital megaphone. It's a process that poses awkward questions for the country's social media giants. What are their responsibilities when this happens, when lies are sprinkled like breadcrumbs on their company's platforms? And how in particular has Twitter and its soft-spoken billionaire chief executive Jack Dorsey handled these issues? We'll delve into these questions on this, the third and final episode of Conspiracy Lands, A Death in Florida, brought to you by Skullduggery. Episode 3, Chapter 7, Bizarro World. Well, Michael, my name is Jack Bergman. I'm a lawyer and political strategist in Washington, D.C. Some may even call me a conspiracy theorist. Jack Berkman is another character you might remember from the first season of Conspiracy Land. He's a seemingly affable Washington lobbyist with his own YouTube channel, a once ubiquitous Republican commentator on cable, who has distinguished himself in recent years by making increasingly wild allegations of conspiracies and government cover-ups. In 2017, he produced a video purporting to reenact the last days of Seth Rich, whose death from gunshot wounds on the streets of Washington had become a running narrative for conspiracy-minded allies of Donald Trump. In the video, which Berkman produced with hired actors, Rich doesn't die from a botched street robbery, as Washington police had concluded, but from a premeditated hit by government assassins intent on silencing him for seeking to reveal corruption within the DNC and leaking party emails to WikiLeaks. You damn amateur, you exposed us. No, 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 I took all the necessary precautions. They can't trace you to anything. Save your breath. Turn around, walk. What? Walk. You don't want to do anything. What are you doing? Since then, along with his new business partner, Jacob Wall, who is facing criminal charges of securities fraud in Arizona, Berkman has called press conferences to accuse Elizabeth Warren of hiring a male prostitute, Nancy Pelosi of using drugs, and Robert Mueller and Anthony Fauci of sexually assaulting women. All claims that produced laughter among the few journalists who would show up for these events, since Berkman never produced the slightest bit of evidence to back any of it up. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Uh, good afternoon. And thanks to everyone for being here. You know, as you get into a world that just goes wild on the Internet, there has to be a group that does nothing but get to the truth and get to the bottom of things. And frankly, in both... Within a few weeks of Trump's tweet storms about cold case Joe, 
Berkman and Wall called another one of their press conferences to make a startling new claim. Today, in just a moment, we will present a gentleman by the name of Mark Hoffman. Mark Hoffman overheard roughly two years ago, I'll let, you, I'll let him tell you the dates, but about two years ago, he overheard Joe Scarborough bragging, indeed bragging, about killing Lori Plazutis. Remember, the idea that Joe Scarborough had murdered his former aide, Lori Klausutis, was a fringe and baseless conspiracy theory that had circulated on the internet for years, with literally nothing to support it. Independent journalist Ford Fisher attended Berkman's press conference, live-streamed it, and quickly concluded the whole thing was a hoax. The mystery witness who Berkman called Mark Hoffman never showed up in person, no details were given about who he was or where he worked, and when he spoke briefly on Skype, his face was invisible. The man calling himself Hoffman then played what purported to be a secret tape he claimed to have made of Scarborough, supposedly boasting about the killing over dinner at the Delano restaurant in Miami Beach two years ago. A largely indecipherable recording, in which, says Fisher, it was impossible to make out much of anything. It's very obviously fake. It's very obviously not Joe Scarborough's voice. In my opinion, I will say that it's what it sounds like to me is a recording of somebody trying to do an impression of Joe Scarborough. Why would uh, Joe Scarborough brag about killing a woman? You'd have to ask him. But I'll tell you, you know, this might be one where Donald Trump and I are on the same side. The president has uh, said that he believes this story as well. It's come straight from the White House. When I pointed out that the local police had found no evidence that Klaus Sudis had been murdered, Berkman insisted that of course the cops said that because they were totally controlled by Scarborough, who he depicted as the dictatorial boss tweed of the Florida panhandle. Well, if I just I can tell you that Scarborough, every person in the Pensacola area basically reported to him. He ran a machine. He was the power. He came in, took the whole thing over. There wasn't one person that didn't answer to him. And if you think if there's any way in which there would have been a conviction or anything, any type of serious investigation launched against a man like that in an absolute Tammany Hall situation. Scarborough, it's Tammany Hall. If Berkman's claims seem ridiculously conspiratorial, they're nothing compared to another crowd that picked up on Trump's tweets, the devotees of QAnon. Hi guys, Sunday 24th of May, just gone 6.30 in the evening. We'll just move backwards to this tweet, a blow to a head body found under his desk, left Congress suddenly, big topic of discussion in Florida, and he's a nut job with bad ratings. Keep digging, use forensic geniuses. And this clearly makes me think that Donald Trump knows something. He wouldn't be pushing this if he didn't. For those who haven't followed it, QAnon is the name of an amorphous and bizarre conspiracy cult that believes a secret U.S. government intelligence insider, who goes by the name of Q, is fighting to expose a deep state plot orchestrated by child sex traffickers, Satan worshippers, and other nefarious criminals who are actively seeking to sabotage Donald Trump's presidency. QAnon followers, who, having been expelled from most mainstream platforms, now message each other on fringe sites such as BitChute and Voat, intensely follow Trump's tweets for clues about the actions and identities of the deep state conspirators. 
They follow Trump's tweets very closely because they see Trump as working with Q and with them against the deep state. Joseph Yuzinski is a political scientist who co-authored a book on American conspiracy theories. So everything that Trump tweets, they, they look at and decipher and decode. Every Trump tweet to them has some sort of subterfuge going on. There's a secret message that only they can know. And once Trump started targeting Scarborough, QAnon picked up on those messages, identifying the MSNBC host as one of those deep state plotters, and Lori Klausudis, his former aide, as a young woman who knew too much. Here's one post that linked Lori's death to secret documents implicating what the QAnon folks described as illegal covert ops. A new bombshell report indicates that sources within the United States Special Ops Group said that former congressional staff aide Lori Klazutis had been reading secret explosive True Colors documents, raising questions as to how and why Scarborough was in possession of transcripts detailing illegal covert operations conducted by and linked directly to White House crime families. U.S. intelligence officials were specific in their reports that a, quote, P2 team of three operatives from Central Intelligence suffocated her in Scarborough's Florida District Office recently after his divorce. A brief fact check here, courtesy of TJ. Lori didn't have a security clearance that would have given her access to any secret documents. And for that matter, Scarborough's Fort Walton Beach Constituent Service Office, where Lori worked, was not a skiff, a sensitive compartmented information facility where such material must be stored. But no matter, in the view of the QAnon crazies, those explosive documents Lori Klesutis was supposedly reading would have exposed some of the biggest conspiracies of all. Intelligence officials have said the top secret True Colors files dealt with government involvement in the 9-11 attacks, White House-sponsored death squads, the Oklahoma City bombing, and one you probably never heard of, and evidence involving some 150 witnesses implicating former President George H.W. Bush and former President Bill and First Lady Hillary Clinton and then-Texas Governor George W. Bush and others in the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. QAnon promoted much other nonsense, of course, the Pizzagate conspiracy, which held that Hillary Clinton and her associates were trafficking young children out of the non-existent basement in a popular Washington, D.C. pizza parlor, and of course, the idea that the COVID pandemic is a giant deep state hoax. As first reported last year by Yahoo News, the FBI identified QAnon as a fringe conspiracy group that could pose a domestic terrorism threat. And yet the group seems to be forging ever closer links to Trump and his party. In August, an avowed QAnon supporter, Marjorie Taylor Greene, won a GOP House primary race in Georgia, and Trump promptly praised her as a future star of the party. And when recently asked about QAnon, the president seemed to welcome the cult's support. During the pandemic, uh, the QAnon movement has been, appears to be gaining a lot of followers. Can you talk about what you think about that and what you have to say to people who are following this movement right now? Well, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, uh, which I appreciate. But I don't know much about the movement. 
Uh, I have heard that it is gaining in popularity. And from what I hear, it's, these are people that don't like seeing what's going on in places like Portland and places like Chicago and New York and other cities and states. And uh, I've heard these are people that love our country and they just don't like seeing it. So I don't know really anything about it other than they do supposedly like me. At, at the crux of the theory is this belief that you are secretly saving the world from this satanic cult of pedophiles and cannibals. Does that sound like something you are behind? Well, or I haven't. I haven't heard that, but. Uh, is that supposed to be a bad thing or a good thing? I mean, you know, if, uh, if I can help save the world from problems, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to put myself out there. And we are, actually. We're saving the world from a radical left philosophy that will destroy this country. And when this country is gone, the rest of the world would follow. But I will say this, we need strength in our country, not weakness. In short, Trump and QAnon feed off each other. But when it comes to QAnon's crazed conspiracy theories about Joe Scarborough and Lori Klausudis, let's remember what inspired them in the first place. The repeated ramblings of the president about Cold Case Joe, all delivered this year to hundreds of millions of iPhones and laptops around the world, courtesy of the president's favorite platform, Twitter. Chapter 8 the Twitter Dodge. What would the president have to say on Twitter to be kicked off? That's New York Times columnist Andrew Sorkin questioning Twitter CEO Dorsey during a revealing interview at a DealBook conference on November 9th, 2017. First and foremost, we, um, we hold every single account to the same standard, to the same rules and to the same policies. If an account were to publicly attack or harass a private citizen, for instance, we would take action. But he has said things about certain people. So we do, we do have a, a clause in our terms of service that unfortunately we did not uh, have publicly stated, but we operated internally, which is one of those gaps that I'm, I'm speaking to, around newsworthiness and public interest and keeping content up because of it, it, because it is of public interest, because there is reporting on it, because it is a record of an action. And this is a subject, subjective uh, evaluation by us. It's worth noting that it was just a few weeks after that exchange, on November 29th, 2017, that Trump first tweeted that Scarborough should be investigated for the murder of Lori Klausudis. And Dorsey's explanation to Sorkin was no offhand comment. Whether inadvertently or not, he was disclosing an internal company policy that had been in existence for some time, that presidents and other political leaders get a pass on Twitter to say pretty much whatever they want. As the CEO later articulated more fully in a January 2018 tweet, casting all of this in somewhat high-minded terms. Twitter is here to serve and help advance the global public conversation, Dorsey wrote. Elected world leaders play a critical role in that conversation because of their outsized impact on our society. Blocking a world leader from Twitter or removing their controversial tweets would hide important information people should be able to see and debate. 
We believe that's the best way to help our society make progress. Dorsey's formulation reflected an extension of what had been Twitter's core philosophy ever since the company was founded in 2007, at least how he and other company officials interpreted them. Twitter began as a digital bulletin board for users to communicate with each other in short 140-character messages or tweets, a platform its libertarian-minded founders saw as a way to promote and facilitate free speech, not to censor it. It was a guiding principle that company executives reveled in during the Arab uprisings of 2010 and 11, when protesters used Twitter to spread their pro-democracy messages throughout the Middle East. It was, you know, coming off of the heels of the Arab Spring, where, you know, Twitter was taking credit for bringing people together and the rise of you know, uh, of democracy around the world because information can be shared. Vivian Schiller, a former president of NPR, had joined Twitter in 2013 as its chief of news partnerships and shared the company's excitement about what it had created, at least at first. You know, the, the ethos at the time, which came from um, the general counsel at the time, um, Alex McGivory, who's people call him AMAC, uh, you know, his line was Twitter is the free speech wing of the free speech party, which was absolutely the ethos. And I remember at the time when I joined Twitter, feeling very proud of that ethos because I thought, isn't this a remarkable thing? This is going to introduce, uh, this is going to democratize information and give everybody around the world a voice. What Schiller, who later left the company, didn't see at the time is how the company's pro-democracy ethos could be twisted and turned into a platform for hate speech, disinformation, and wild conspiracy theories. I look back now, and my God, the naivete of not really understanding what that could lead to is mind-boggling now, in hindsight. T.J. Klausudis wrote his letter to Twitter CEO Dorsey pleading with him to delete Trump's tweets on May 22, 2020. We played T.J. reading portions of that letter in the first episode, but one line is worth repeating here. I'm asking you to intervene in this instance because the President of the United States has taken something that does not belong to him, the memory of my dead wife, and perverted it for perceived political gain. Apparently, somebody inside Twitter agreed, because the letter got quickly leaked to journalist and Recode co-founder Kara Swisher, who wrote a column about it for the New York Times under the headline, Twitter Must Cleanse the Trump Stain. At least at first, the company seemed unmoved, issuing a statement that it was deeply sorry about the pain caused to Klausudis' family, but saying nothing about removing the offending presidential tweets. It was a standard punt by Twitter, as Swisher, who was especially influential in Silicon Valley, explained in an interview at the time. You know, I think it's a typical Twitter response, which is a non-response, which is, we feel your pain, we're working on some tools to stop this kind of, this kind of thing. The net effect was to once again give Trump a free pass. It's like he's walking down the Fifth Avenue of Twitter and he's shooting someone and he, he doesn't get arrested. By the time TJ's letter became public the next week, the company's hands-off approach to false conspiracy theories was finally getting tough scrutiny, and the issue of Trump's tweets about Scarborough and Lori Klausudis were being cited as a prime example of the sort of abuses the company had to address. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Cheryl with Twitter's Investor Relations Team, and I'd like to welcome you all to Twitter's annual shareholder meeting. The subject of TJ's letter and the issues he was raising came up a number of times on May 27th when Twitter had its annual shareholder meeting. And Dorsey, who declined to be interviewed for this podcast, was pressed by shareholders about the company's waffle on Trump's tweets. Our next question is, in my opinion, President Trump used Twitter to cause pain to a private family. Trump made an example of Joe Scarborough as if to say people in the media that if they please him, he can use Twitter to baselessly accuse them of murder. Will you protect freedom of the press here and end Donald Trump's ability to use Twitter to agonize a private family by deleting his tweets that accuse Scarborough of murder? And if not, why not? This is Jack again. Thank you for the question. If you listen closely, Dorsey, after conciliatory comments about the pain the Klausutis family has gone through, still sticks to Twitter's basic free speech credo that Trump's tweets somehow contributed to Democratic debate because the public got the chance to read what he has to say about Joe Scarborough and Lori Klausutis and then respond, therefore leading to a Democratic dialogue of sorts. We feel terrible for what the family is going through um, as a result of uh, these actions and and these behaviors. Uh, And we're doing everything that we can to make sure that we continue to incentivize uh, healthy debate, healthy conversation on Twitter. We also believe that it's important that people have conversations around uh, what's happening, especially with our global leaders, that they can uh, push back, that they can speak truth to power, that they can share and, and, and show why this particular behavior is not right and not just. Uh, and we also believe it's critical that people um, take to the legal system as well and the courts. I played those comments for TJ, and it's fair to say he wasn't pleased to hear them, especially Dorsey's assertion that allowing the president to tweet unfiltered about the death of his wife was contributing to a healthy public conversation and debate. Well, that's a bunch of bullshit. It's bullshit. It's, this was not an issue that was important to our society whatsoever. This had no social value. This had nothing to do with how we run this country, how we want to be as a society. This was a petty attack on another individual using any means necessary. And it was demonstrably false. I'm not against free speech by any stretch of the imagination. But what was the social value that, you know, he's talking about here? How is this issue of any importance to anything that's going on in our world or country today? Among those who also decided to try to get Twitter to change its policies were Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. Scarborough chose not to be interviewed for this podcast, concerned, as he told me when we spoke over the phone, that any further comments by him would only give the story more oxygen. But he did tell me that he and Mika tried to get through to Dorsey himself, only to be directed to Twitter's chief lawyer and other executives who told them during lengthy talks that yes, Twitter understood their concerns, and yes, Twitter was working on new policies that would address these sorts of tweets in the future, But no, for now, they were not going to remove the tweets about Cold Case Joe and the death of Lori Klausutis. And yet, for all of Twitter's intransigence, there are signs that the protests of TJ and Scarborough 
maybe getting heard after all. The day after TJ's letter went public, Twitter did something it hadn't done before. It flagged two other Trump tweets about election fraud as potentially misleading and linked to articles correcting them. In the weeks that followed, the company flagged five additional tweets with warning labels, including one containing a manipulated video. It hid another Trump tweet that seemed to threaten protesters with getting shot by federal agents, attaching an advisory that it violated the company's policies forbidding abusive behavior. And in July, it removed more than 7,000 accounts linked to QAnon. As Twitter took these actions, Facebook, Reddit, Snap, and other social media companies also started getting more aggressive, removing or labeling postings by the president and his followers. Roger McNamee, one of the original investors in Facebook and a sharp critic of the social media companies, says this was no coincidence. TJ's letter, he says, came at just the right moment when the social media giants were facing pressure from all quarters to purge the pollution on their platforms. Did TJ's letter make an impact? Definitely. TJ's letter was perfectly timed. It followed a pandemic, an economic collapse, and the murder of George Floyd, which collectively have caused the country to go through a period of self-reflection. And into that moment of self-reflection, TJ launched his letter and for the first time in memory, people in the United States are being honest with themselves about hate speech, being honest with themselves about the damage conspiracy theories can do. And I believe a year from now, we have a very good chance to be in a much better place relative to the behavior of internet platforms, that regulation should be moving down the path by this time next year and the opportunity to require good citizenship by corporations is beginning and tj's letter will have made a contribution to that well the companies have said their new policies have been in the works for some time journalist swisher believes that tj's letter and the publicity it received may well have egged them on or as she put it given them some backbone to do what many inside the company had wanted to do for some time. Look, I'd love to take, or he should take credit, not me, but I'd love to take calling attention to it, credit for them shifting. It gave them courage to do what they were already working on, and they were already at work on doing something about this. T.J. Klausutis, who of course should get the primary credit, is conflicted. He agrees that he may have helped start something. My letter having gotten out the opinion pieces that followed that week, I, I think that that groundswell really left them in a position where they had to do something. And so I think, yeah, strangely enough, a, a simple letter, a well-written letter, or even a poorly written letter can change some history. But that is still small comfort for what he's been through and what he and the rest of Lori's family will likely have to endure well into the future. I'll use the term suffering, quite honestly. And nobody, and I mean nobody, should have to be used in such a fashion. When there's a raw, open wound, 
every time it starts to heal up, it gets a little tougher. Here comes another one of these events in this that sort of peels the scab back and re-exposes it. And here we are 19 years later, I should not be having to worry about having a fresh open wound on this. And that wound is still most of all about Lori and the stain the conspiracy theories have left on the memories of the cheerful girl he had picked out at the church choir so many years ago. You know, this whole story, this whole conspiracy, everything else, it actually has nothing to do with her. She's just an asterisk. She's just a footnote. She's what gives it a little sizzle. And, and it's unfair. You know, her, her life, her being, her goodness will never, ever be remembered. It's only going to be all this other crap. It's just been unfair. It's just been completely unfair. It's it, this woman deserves so much better than I had or have the ability to do for her. TJ still stays in touch with Lori's parents and her sister, who, like him, have been anguished by the conspiracy theories about her. They chose not to participate in this podcast. TJ also keeps in touch with Lori's two young nephews and niece, and he thinks about them a lot when he reads the president's tweets or sees the wild claims about their aunt on the internet. They've heard stories about her. They're never going to get a chance to meet her. They should never come across this type of crap, vile, you know, behaviors. They should not ever have to think of their aunt other than who she was. I hope they never find it, but I'm not so naive. And they've asked some things that we should be here, those that knew and loved her, and be able to tell them about that. They should never, ever, ever have to learn about, you know, this conspiracy version of who she was because it was, I don't know, somebody's hobby or fascination or what. There are a couple of final points to make about all this. First is, if you remember Trump's tweets, the president was calling for a new cold case investigation to be opened up into Lori Klausudis' death to determine if Joe Scarborough was responsible for her murder. But I checked with the only entity empowered to do so, the police department in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and you probably won't be surprised to learn they have no intention of doing anything along those lines, as Lieutenant Colonel Mark Hayes, the department commander in charge of investigations, made clear when I talked to him. No. No, this case is uh, closed. Everything appears to be what it, what it was determined to be, you know, accidental, nothing suspicious. We don't have any new information and there's nothing that we've seen that would lead us to believe anything different other than the original conclusions. And this is not a murder case? No, sir. No, this is not a murder case. And one other point, perhaps with a little historical perspective. We've all become so inured to many of the things that President Trump says and does, so that each outrage has only a brief moment in the spotlight, whipping the media into a frenzy for one news cycle until it's overtaken by yet another tweet or comment. What infuriated and appalled folks one day is forgotten the next. But sometimes it's worth taking a step back and freezing the moment, 
to look closely at what the president has just done and ponder what it tells us about him and what it means for the rest of us. That's what we've tried to do here with the story of Lori Klausudis and Joe Scarborough. Donald Trump, at least in his tweets, never quite accused Joe Scarborough of actually committing murder. He only suggested it. A lot of people think so, he said. It's very suspicious. I feel like he did. Somebody needs to look at it. There is no statute of limitations. He also never actually said that Lori Klausudis had been having a sexual affair with Scarborough. He only implied it. Whatever happened to your girlfriend, he wrote about Scarborough, never actually mentioning Klausudis' name, though there was no doubt who he was talking about. It was the classic smear, guilt by innuendo, planting seeds of doubt among millions of his followers without offering a speck of evidence to back any of it up. Seventy years ago, a U.S. senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, did much the same thing, making reckless charges, implying that there were hordes of communists embedded inside the U.S. government, questioning the patriotism of loyal Americans, breeding conspiracy theories. McCarthy and McCarthyism, the name given to his brand of politics, held sway for four years, until the media finally stood up and called him out, until his fellow senators censured him, until the American public got fed up and turned against him. And then Joe McCarthy, for all intents and purposes, went away, leaving only unsettling memories of how low our politics can go until we are reminded of it once again. I'm Michael Isikoff. Thanks for listening. A few thanks are in order. Yahoo News contributor Suzanne Smalley for tracking down many of the characters and conducting invaluable research. Also, a special thanks to independent journalist Tim Berger, producer Mark Seaman, and all the folks at Long Story Short, who, as in last year's Conspiracy Land, did the heavy lifting, researching, producing, and editing, making this podcast possible.